Open the precious Word of God with me this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 for us to open the Word of God and deal some final blows to preterism. We cannot call them death blows because preterism is already dead. And while we just sang, Break thou the bread of life, to me I feel more like I'm breaking open a package of dynamite to blow this ridiculous heresy to smithereens. And if you wonder about the length of time we've spent on it, well, obviously, some among us don't know the basics. So I'm going to help you by repetition, and Peter, in just a few minutes, is going to help me by reminding me that real preaching is a lot of repetition so that you don't get waylaid by frivolous, foolish, nonsensical, vacuous heresies like preterism. But I want to share one with you that belongs back under point two. I have ten categories of arguments against preterism. The first being that preterism is denied by the gospel because it denies things the gospel promises that are yet future. Second of all was their timing fallacies, and I want to share one with you. One of the many arguments in the the timings fallacy section of my outline and the way I've presented this rebuttal of preterism to you is that the only timing passages of the Bible they want to deal with are the ones that favor their cause. If there's a timing passage that doesn't favor their cause... They just ignore it. So come to Matthew 22 with me. These are verses you read last evening. And because you read them last evening, and because I want to be efficient in my time, I'm not going to read them to you right now. It is a parable, but it is a prophecy. And it runs from verse 1 to verse 14. I want to ask you, where is the destruction of Jerusalem and 70 A.D. in this passage of 14 verses. Pick a verse, number, and there's only one. Seven. That is correct. Matthew 22, 7 is the destruction of Jerusalem and what took place in 70 A.D. But we're only partway through the timeline of prophecy. Bless His holy name. Preterism timing fallacies. They don't want to deal with passages like this. They only want to use the ones that serve their cause. I'm thankful for our Baptist brother in North Carolina, Chris Burton, for this one. He was listening to the sermons on preterism and he shared with me what the Lord gave him as the place that he started when he encountered preterism a few years ago. And this is where the Lord led him. And it's a delightful place. And I'm thankful for it. And I love giving credit for it to where the Lord moves hearts and minds to see things. But this prophecy is first a prophecy of the kingdom of heaven being offered to Jews in verses 1 through 7. They reject it and make light of it. And so he burns up their city after they kill his prophets and his sons, his son. But then in verses 8 through 14, it's to the Gentiles. And so what we have coming after 70 A.D. is the time of the Gentiles. And Luke chapter 21 describes that as a pretty long time. And we know it's a long time because we're still in it. And it's 2,000 years later. 
So we have the time of the Gentiles, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have the King coming, and we have the day of judgment when those without wedding garments are thrown into outer darkness. Praise His name. Amen. Glory to God for His wonderful Word. I hope you're all... I've preached the passage to you before. I've preached it verse by verse, phrase by phrase before. It's, an, it's a sermon entitled, Two Parables Explained. But there it is. A nice timeline in the Bible. And 70 A.D. is obviously right in the middle of it, missing the greater events on the right-hand side of it. Wonderful. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Let's now go to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. We have now come to categorical argument number 5. Argument number 1, the category was, the gospel denies preterism. And though there are several basic things you want to remember, simply, there is a literal, physical, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ promised in the Bible, and it did not occur in 70 A.D. 2. There is a resurrection of all the dead. Wicked and righteous. Three, there is a great day of judgment of the quick and the dead. All the dead, all the living, wicked and righteous, will be judged and stand before Jesus Christ, and there will be a renovation of the heavens and the earth so that we get a new one set. Those four great events, you should know at least one place to go for each of them and just hold on to them. There's whole chapters dedicated to them. 1 Corinthians 15 is the... Resurrection chapter. The first question I asked in the quiz last night. And all 58 verses there are about the resurrection of dead physical bodies, which preterists have to deny. So, by category number one, the gospel has refuted preterism. Preterism has been denied by the gospel claims and promises that it makes. Number two is their timing fallacies, and we approach that from a number of angles, and we just added another one to it from Matthew 22. Third, Daniel refutes preterism in Daniel chapter 7. That was last Sunday morning. Four, Paul refutes preterism in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, Paul refutes preterism in a whole lot of other places, but I've included them elsewhere in the outline so that we could focus on the actual passage where he deals with the timing and tells the Thessalonians it is not at hand. There are two great events that must take place before the Lord Jesus Christ can come, and those two events took centuries to even get started. And by the way, I want to thank Brother Newell and I want to thank Brother Jerry for reminding me that it was Henry IV of Germany that was forced to stand in the snow... In, in poor clothing for three days in the winter before the Pope would receive him. Just go look at, just go punch in Henry the Fourth or Gregory the Seventh, and you're going to find out a nice little exchange between the two of them about who had the most authority in the Holy Roman Empire. And guess who ended up with the most authority? The Pope. But last Sunday, when I had a fallout mentally and couldn't remember what king it was, it was Henry IV, not of England, but of Germany. Second Peter chapter 3. We have now come to the fifth categorical argument against preterism, and it is preterism refuted by Peter. Let me read the first seven verses to you. This second epistle, beloved... I now write unto you, 
in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord, and this is what we believe, no matter who might claim to be a preterist, though there be few, and they of the baser sort that do. The Apostle Peter is writing his second epistle, and so he uses the word both in the first verse, and he used both epistles to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. He wanted to remind them of things that they should keep in mind, lest they be moved away from their own steadfastness. As he tells them in verse 17 of the same chapter, Beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now he mentions in verse 2 that the holy prophets and the apostles had taught the things that are here, and that he wanted them mindful of them. So he's dealing with something that was a common, fundamental axiom and doctrine of apostolic religion. And it's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the renovation of the heavens and the earth. It's those great, stupendous events the Bible describes, two of which are mentioned in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3, as being essential components of Christianity. He mentions that. He says, the things that I'm about to lay on you, I'm writing these two epistles. What did the first epistle start out with? What's chapter 1 all about of 1 Peter? Now, I read it to you this morning in your hearing. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lively hope that we have in Him by the resurrection of the dead. Those things were given forth by the holy prophets and by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ with commandments on how to live in light of His coming. And in verse 3, knowing this first, the first thing that I want you to know about these great events that are yet to come that the prophets told you about and the apostles have commanded you to believe, there's going to be scoffers in the last days. Now Peter's writing in 65 A.D., this is their date, Peter's writing in 65 A.D., which means there's only months left until Jesus comes, the resurrection of the dead occurs, there's a new heavens and a new earth, and the great day of judgment happens, according to preterist thinking. There's only a few months left. And for some reason, the Lord, through Peter's hand, is going to insert a thousand-year rule for a prophecy that's only months away, according to a preterist. We know these events haven't taken place yet. And so do all other Christians. Except a few radical nutcases. And I'm being very gracious, merciful, and charitable. Because you have no idea what I'd like to say. 
Oh, you might. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, making fun of and mocking the apostolic religion and the prophecies of things to come, walking after their own lust. That's all that drives them, is their pride and arrogance to be heard, throwing everything that Christians have believed for 2,000 years in the toilet, flushing it, and coming up with something new that overturns the whole New Testament as it was by le- as it was believed in the beginning and as it is still believed today by all those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and truth. Right. Verse 4, and here's what these scoffers are going to say. Where is the promise of His coming? He promised to come soon. He promised to come shortly. He promised His coming was at hand. He promised to come quickly. Where is the promise of His coming? This is not something that was going to happen in Peter's day. Peter is saying this was something that's going to happen later. Scoffers shall come, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. These, this is a description of preterists and those like them that would come up with such things. This is not Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus is already passed. Paul has already dealt him an apostolic death blow in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. Where is the promise of His coming? The prophet said He would come. He said He would come. You apostles have said He would come. Where is He? For since the fathers fell asleep, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the whole earth has continued on without a change. From the beginning of the creation, they add, it hasn't really changed since God created it in Genesis chapter 1. So Peter takes them to task by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by reminding them of an event that they should have read in their synagogues in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 about the flood of Noah's day. For this they willingly are ignorant of. And that's what it takes to go into heresy. You choose to be willingly ignorant of something you were taught. You choose to be willingly ignorant of something that is obvious in the Bible. For this they willingly are ignorant of. They choose to ignore it because it doesn't fit their scheme. They choose to ignore Matthew 22 and the first 14 verses that I just showed you because it doesn't fit their plan. It doesn't fit their agenda. It would hurt their cause. So they ignore it. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, Psalm 33 and verse 6 tells us, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. He spoke everything into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. That's Genesis chapter 1. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. There was some dry ground that appeared, and there was water that remained where it was, covering this earth. So there was dry land, and there was water. There was earth, and there were oceans. Genesis chapter 1 tells us all that. Verse 6, Whereby the world that then was, that created world, that earth with its herbs and plants and trees and animal life and dry land and oceans and seas, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The flood came and washed them all away. Every living thing that had the breath of life in it was destroyed, except Noah and his family and the animals that he had taken into the ark. 
So we are talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth, the physical, material, geological heavens and earth that was also drowned in the days of Noah and destroyed and perished. Now only the earth was destroyed and perished by the flood because the flood was confined to our terrestrial globe. So it says in verse 6, whereby the world that then was, Noah's world, the one God created in the days of Adam, being overflowed with water, perished. Now he's mentioned the creation of the heavens in verse 5, but they didn't perish with the flood because the flood was limited to this world. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, both of them, heavens and earth, which are now, which have re, which remain after Noah's flood and the waters receded from off the earth, what we've had now for the last 4,500 years, by the same word are kept in store. The same word that was able to create in the beginning and that word that was able to bring the flood in the days of Noah, that same almighty word, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. They are in storage. They are on hold for a day that's coming for them. The heavens and the earth which we know now. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We have two events right here in this passage. We have the day of judgment mentioned in this seventh verse. And we have the burning by fire of the heavens and the earth, which is then repeated in verse 10. The day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment, which is the coming of Christ, which is the resurrection of the dead, which is the renovation of the universe. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens, this is worse than Noah's day, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when the heavens disappear? What kind of a noise that's going to be? With a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This is worse than Noah's day. It was water then. It's fire now. It was just the earth then. It's the heavens and the earth now. May the Lord help me make this plain to you so that it sits in your memories and is not lost nor forgotten and you can use it for the comfort of your own faith and you can use it to shut the mouths of gainsayers. Verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What's going to be dissolved? The heavens, the earth, the elements, and the works that are in the earth. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There are the descriptions of what's going to happen. And verse 13 tells us, no worry, I'm going to change the heavens and the earth, just like described in Psalm 102 that we read this morning, repeated in Hebrews chapter 1, and it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Do you look forward to going to that place? It's unbelievable. Some of you would get excited if I promised you a vacation six months from now in Myrtle Beach. One of the ugliest places on earth. One of the most overrun tattoo parlors and bikini sales stores that there is anywhere gathered together on this planet. But if I was to promise you a vacation 
of two weeks and give you a couple hundred bucks spending money every day, how excited you would be. For those of you that love Myrtle Beach, forgive me, but I must tell the truth. And in comparison to what we're talking about, new heavens and a new earth, you should be able to understand it. This should excite us beyond measure. Brethren, we're not going on vacation. We're going to be retired. We're going to be retired to engage in the activity of pleasing God, and it will be the chief and only joy of our hearts forever in a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Brethren, it's coming. It didn't happen in 70 A.D., You know that we can walk outside right now and start pointing out the death, decay, and dysfunction all around us in the elements, in the earth. Hasn't happened yet. Here's our brother Peter trying to help us by refuting preterism for us. This passage burns down the house of cards built by preterists. Do you know that we, we know the audience of the two epistles of Peter? You know that we know the audience? Why don't you come? First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 so that I can show you. This is helpful. Let's just fan the flames a little bit that are burning up the cards. Verse 1 of First Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's his audience. Go look them up on a map. Will you trust me if I tell you? Did Paul write to the churches of Galatia? Did he essay to go into Bithynia? But the Holy Spirit didn't let him. Where was he when that happened? He was in Turkey. This is across the Mediterranean Sea. Whatever was going to happen in Jerusalem, even if there was fire in Jerusalem that burned up a few things in the city of Jerusalem, it didn't affect these people at all, 600 plus miles away across the Mediterranean in Turkey. Let's move on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We can see what men do is say that this passage, and men as gifted as, I use these words, Appropriately, and I hope you understand what I mean, the right reverend and doctor of divinity, John Owen, the chaplain of Oliver Cromwell, didn't have a clue when it came to Second Peter chapter 3. The entire passage is the abrogating or the destroying of the Old Testament of Moses and the institution of of the new. It's old covenant disappearing, new covenant being established. The new heavens and the new earth are the gospel dispensation. Now I want to tell you something about the Bible. In Haggai chapter 2, by the way, that's when there's a shaking of the heavens and the earth and the desire of all nations would come. I hope you know what I'm pointing to, brethren. That was from your quiz last night. That's Haggai 2. God said to encourage Zerubbabel in the building of that second temple, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the desire of all nations shall come. 
And I will fill this house with glory. So that this house is going to have more glory than the former house being Solomon's house. And in this house I will make peace. Meaning that in the second temple's duration, there was going to be an event of Jesus Christ coming and making peace when the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom and He shook the heavens and the earth and the old covenant floated away. Hebrews chapter 8. And the new covenant was established. But Jesus established the new covenant at the Lord's Supper, which was instituted in the last Passover, he observed, when he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 8, now that which waxeth old is ready to vanish away. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul said, Haggai 2 had already been fulfilled. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. What does he mean by those words, that we have received a kingdom which cannot be moved? It means the shaking of the heaven and the earth removed everything that was temporal and left everything that was permanent. And what's permanent is the way we worship God right now. In spirit and in truth. Not in ceremonial worship of animal blood like Moses and his law. And so we see a shaking of the heavens and the earth describing the change in covenants. But we find that Paul said that that was already fulfilled in Hebrews 12. And the shaking of the heavens and the earth is not the absolute dissolution and burning them up with fire so that everything melts under fervent heat. It's just a shaking so that things temporal float off and everything else remains. But the earth and the heavens are going to be changed. Changed. Preterists deny a new heavens and a new earth. Even though that is exactly what is under consideration here. Notice that it is the coming of Jesus Christ that is the issue at stake. Verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? It's the coming of Jesus Christ that is at stake. That is one of the events here, along with new heavens and a new earth, along with the day of judgment. The day of judgment requiring the resurrection of the dead. So all four events are right here if you just read and think. Verse 4, then in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What promise? Of His coming. The one mentioned in verse 4. And as we proceed down through these next five verses, we see the day of the Lord in verse 10. And we see the day of God in verse 12. And in verse 14, it's that we may be found of Him. That means He's going to come looking for us. It's His coming. I hope that it's all plain to you to see that. The great events connected to His coming right here are the day of judgment and the changing of the heavens and the earth. The parallel event, which I hope that you can see in verses 5 and 6, is the destruction of the earth in the days of Noah by water, and now the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed by fire. This is what we have believed. I'm just proving it to you, showing it to you, and giving you the materials that you can defend your faith and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Preterists deny the great day of judgment. We've already dealt with that under preterism being denied by the gospel, but there's a great day of judgment right here that is mentioned at the end of verse 7. The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's the destruction of ungodly men when he shall come with his mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. But the same event 
of His coming will be for our admiration of Him. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says He's going to destroy the wicked, but we're going to admire Him in that day. And how did Paul know that the Thessalonians would be admiring Him in that day? Because our gospel was believed when we preached it to you. Because faith in the gospel is evidence of one's election and how they will be be received and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, there are many things that could be said. When you look at the outline, you will know that your pastor took many shortcuts to preach this series in the number of messages that it did take. But we want to come to the eighth verse. But, but, we have an insertion here that is to stop our thinking for a moment as we're going to be given a divine perspective on time so that as we face the onslaught of scoffers mocking His coming and say, where is the promise of His coming? As we remember that the holy prophets and the apostles of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had foretold His coming, and as we think upon verses 5 through 7, and we know that there is a day of God coming and a day of judgment coming, that we will not be alarmed in our minds or be troubled like Paul warned the Thessalonians because we have the 8th verse. But, beloved, beloved, I know that you believe, verse 7 and 6 and 5 and 4, 3, 2 and 1, and you believe the promises made by the prophets and by the apostles, but, beloved, when it comes to the matter of timing, you need to remember the divine perspective on timing. And my brethren, if you want yourself a little ace in your back pocket whenever you're dealing with a preterist or someone who wants to mess around with their sound bites and we've already proven their sound bites to be false by looking at the use of those sound bites in the Old Testament and if they had started reading at Genesis instead of starting their reading at Revelation they would have learned that on the way to Revelation but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing while you're taking the heat of the scoffers, and while you know the promises that there is a coming judgment, and that there is a renovation of the heavens and the earth, do not think that the promises made by the prophets, made by Jesus Christ Himself, and made by us, His apostles, are immediately to occur. Don't get shaken by that. Don't get shaken by the enemies of the gospel. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. You keep this one thing in mind about its timing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That does not mean God lies to us. That means God has a different perspective on time than us. And this is not the first place this rule is given. It's also given in Psalm 90 and verse 4. And it's also proven by looking at the promises of His coming judgment upon Israel, some of which were 1,600 years later, though He said they were quickly, soon, shortly, or at hand. And I showed them to you. And so we have the... Listen, brethren. Our Father in Heaven knows that we are His little babes. We don't need it piled higher and deeper. Meaning we don't need a PhD. What we need is to humble ourselves before God's Word and believe what it says. And right here in this 8th verse, which they despise, 
And they do everything in their power to take it out of its context and give it an entirely different meaning. But we are talking about a promised coming that had not materialized so that scoffers could say, where is his coming? And so that men could count him slack concerning his promise, verse 9, so you know why the 8th verse is there. It is to explain God's timing as being different than ours. And it's different for a reason that I'm going to get to in a moment. And it's a reason that we love and are thankful. If there is some, if, if you are on death row, and you are told that you are going to be executed soon, and it doesn't happen for 20 years, because someone's having mercy on you, are you going to fault him? It's a horrible illustration. I wish I hadn't even gone down that road. Because we're not on death row, brethren. We're on inheritance row. That's why I don't do it. So forgive me, jury. Please disregard the last comment. I love the combination of these two verses is what I'm trying to say to you. The Lord tells us that His timing is different than ours and He tells us why. Because He wants me to get fully ready to meet Him. And He wants to make sure that every one of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren or as long as the Lord lives are all going to be saved that are His elect because of the ninth verse. He's long-suffering not willing that any should perish. Not a single one is going to perish. God is going to bring them all to salvation through sanctification of spirit and in this particular place to repentance. But we're in the eighth verse. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. This one thing needs to be remembered when you are considering the timing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the attendant events that come along with it like the day of judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God operates by a, by a perspective of time different from ours. Can He say that we are glorified when we are not yet glorified in Romans 8.30? Do you know that? Preterists don't know that. Or if they know it, they willingly are ignorant of it. Earlier in that same epistle, in Romans chapter 4, which is taken out of Genesis chapter 17, God said that He had made Abraham a father of many nations. He explains His violation of verb tenses in Romans chapter 4 by saying that I am able to call those things which be not as though they were. I don't operate by your perspective of time. And that is what the 8th verse is here for. The context forces that to be the reason, and it fits with everything else in the Bible. And it was stated in the Old Testament so that anybody that would read the Bible from Genesis toward Second Peter would already have it in their noggin. But preterists don't. They're willingly ignorant that verse 8 throws out their timing texts, as they call them. Verse 9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Do you know that a preterist will tell you that if He didn't come in that generation, then He's a slacker? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. As some men, oh, let's never be in this category, as some men count slackness, He can take as long as He wants. Because I believe 
that for the righteous in this assembly, your children shall continue before the Lord and your seed shall be established forever because of the eternal promises, commitment, and surety of God our Father. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but here's what He's doing with His divine perspective of verse 8, which means that a thousand years to Him is nothing. And if He's waited two thousand years, it's nothing to Him. It's a couple of days. And here's why. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. And if we're honest with the text, and if we're honest with the context, we should keep the perishing as part of the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's not 70 AD. It's not the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's not really temporal chastening. It's everlasting condemnation in hell because that is what is under consideration. Things being burned up. It's talking about what happens at the last day. The elect are not going to perish. But the elect have to be born or conceived and they have to be born again. And the evidence of being born again is to repent. And so he's bringing his elect through regeneration to repentance. And his use of the terminology here also gets us who are elect, regenerated, and have already repented that we will repent of all our sins and be ready to meet Him because verses 10 through 14 are going to take up that cry that Peter's actual audience be careful in how they live so that they live godly and holy lives looking for that day, not dreading it, and hasting to that day, not wishing that it was not going to be for a while. We should be living in such a way that we want the Lord to come this afternoon. This text, 2 Peter 3, 9, doesn't have a thing to do with Arminian schemes of salvation that God is trying to eternally save every human being. It says usward, it's talking about the elect that 1 Peter 1, 2 said he was writing to. He wrote to the elect that were in those five provinces of Asia Minor. The Lord is not slack. He's not a sluggard. He's not slothful. He's not a procrastinator. He's not a slacker. Concerning His promise, He's coming. He's coming as sure as anything in the universe. He's coming as sure as His existence. He's coming as sure as tomorrow is going to be another day and tonight's going to be another night. Because when you can get rid of the covenant of the day and night, then you can get rid of His covenant with you and me. And you can't, and you can't. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. But it's long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10. And brethren, here's where this prophecy needs to affect our lives. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Notice, you're not going to know when it's coming. It's going to come as a thief in the night. If you knew when a thief was going to come, you'd meet him at the front door. Or there'd be blinking cherries in your driveway if you knew when a thief was coming. So even though he's promised, and though there are scoffers, and though he's not a slacker, he's going to come at a time when you don't think. And he's going to come, whether a thousand years away or a day away, in his own timing. And the reason he's delaying is to give you an opportunity to be ready for him. 
And so we should be living every day as if the thief in the night, metaphorically describing the coming of Jesus Christ, could happen at any time. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Everything that you care about, Monday through Saturday, is going to disappear. Lockheed in Donaldson Center is going to disappear. Apple may have the largest market capitalization of an American company. doesn't mean a thing. It's all going to disappear. All iPads are going to disappear. I'm sorry. Everything is going to disappear. There won't be a BB&T, nor a Wells Fargo, nor a Bank of America, nor a J.P. Morgan. They're all going to disappear. IBM and Bilo go down together at the same time. It's all going to melt. It's all going to disappear. Everything. You know, we get up in the morning and we go to work. We save money. We exercise. We do all these things about this existence that we have now in these bodies, in this world, and these bodies, and this world are going away at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing then, verse 11, seeing then, and brethren, this is the most important part for us, we know the great events of verses 1 through 9 are going to happen. We know that God has a different timing perspective. We know that He's long-suffering to us. But He's long-suffering for these reasons for us. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? What should you be like? What should your character be like? What should your conduct be like? Since everything in this world is going to disappear, including your body. You're going to get a new one. What should you be living like? This is what we must ask and answer before the Lord right now. What manner of persons ought ye to be? What kind of person are you? And then it goes on to describe what manner or kind of person we ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness. Conversation meaning our lifestyle. In a holy lifestyle and godly conduct and character. In all holiness and godliness. That's how we ought to be living because it's called the day of God. Because it's going to be a a day when we see God, know God, and understand His holiness and the measure of His godliness like we have never seen or measured before. And we want to be living in such a way that we can meet Him confidently. That we can shout like we sing, Hallelujah, Amen. Christ returneth. Seeing then. So... There's a result from this prophecy. It ought to change our lives. You know, to a preterist, he can't even preach the passage. First of all, it didn't have any meaning, since all it was talking about was the change in covenants. And the Apostle Paul took care of all that in his epistles. Second of all, it's already passed 1,942 years. So these verses mean nothing. But they're wrong, and so this passage means everything. Right. Seeing then. You say, I don't believe in preterism. Well, do you believe in what's described right here in this passage? That everything in the heavens and the earth, the works and the elements are going to be burned up. Your house, your garden, 
your automobiles, your diplomas, your gold watch that you got from your company when they let you go, whatever it is, it's all going to be burned up. And so seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons should we be? What should we be living like? We should be living all holy, a holy lifestyle in all godliness. Verse 12, looking for this day. Looking for it. Oh Lord, let it be today. Then that evening, let it be tonight. Then the next morning, let it be today. Looking for and hasting. Hasting. Running toward it. Living toward it. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This is answering the question, what manner of persons ought ye to be? That's why there's a question mark there. What manner of persons ought we to be? We ought to be people that are living holy and godly lives so that we can run toward that day because everything else is going to be burned up and we should not be looking back toward Sodom. We should be looking forward. And Jesus would say, remember Lot's wife. Nevertheless, we, verse 13, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what we're looking for. That's why we can run toward it. The day of judgment is going to be easy for us because Jesus Christ is going to intervene and he's the son of the judge and he is the well-beloved son of the judge and he has already paid our fine for us in full, in double. Which passage do you want me to go to? He has said it is finished. We are cleared. We are acquitted. We are guiltless before God. And we shall be judged righteous no matter how many bad works the book of works show us to have. They were all laid on Christ and He bore the punishment for our sins so that we, by His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore? He's Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you and to me. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, and let's be looking for them, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace. That means we're getting along with our spouses, we're getting along with our families, we're getting along in our church, that we may be found in peace, that we're peacemakers, that we love to get along with everyone. Let's be found that way. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace, Without spot. Don't let a bit of this world blot or spot you. And blameless. Let's be blameless instead of spotted. Let's be spotless instead of spotted. Let's not let the world touch us. Let's get rid of it. Let's set our affection on spiritual things. Let's govern our lives. And get rid of ungodly, worldly, carnal, fleshly inputs. And make them spiritual inputs. And look forward to this day. And haste to it seeing that ye look for such things. Is that true of us as a church? Are we looking for this to happen? Or are we saying, Lord, give me another ten years so that I can realize my dreams. If we're here in ten years, come to me and tell me about your dream. Because I'm going to show you, and you might be mature enough and wise enough then, to know that it is all vanity and vexation of spirit. And in comparison of heaven, it's far worse than that. 
Now there's things here that he appeals to about Paul's writings that I'm not going to go into. It's very interesting by the passages that have to be intended by Peter's references to Paul. But let's jump to verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, brethren, I am stirring up your pure minds by way of remembrance so that you cannot rest and destroy yourself by misunderstanding the Bible as as is described in verses 15 and 16. Ye therefore, here's the conclusion, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, that is before they happen, and it's been preached that way for 2,000 years. Peter wrote this in 65. How could he even say before? By the time he had mailed it, 70 A.D. would have happened. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, like the scoffers, like those that rest the Scriptures in verse 16, because they're unlearned, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Let us remember, let us be mindful, as the first couple verses of this chapter state, of these things, and let us not be moved, let us not question them. They are absolutely certain. These promises and prophecies are sure. The Lord is coming. Everything you know in your life is going to be burned up and dissolved. Before God, you need to answer the question and you need to answer the call of these verses that we do not fall from our own steadfastness. Let's be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, which is from 1 Corinthians 15.58, which a preterist can't use because 1 Corinthians 15 is 2,000 years old. I don't know why any of them get up in the morning. But we labor and know that our labor is not in vain because there is a resurrection coming when we're going to get new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and we shall be forever with the Lord. And that's where we need to be steadfast and never move away from it. And it's a disgrace and a shame that anybody could move away from it, even for a second. These are incontrovertible points that the Bible makes. But instead of falling from your own steadfastness, grow in grace. Let's become more and more users of the grace of God and displaying that grace in our lives and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever, when we are with Him. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.